I'm going to let you in. If you're newer, you may not know this. We have parking in the back of the church. If you stayed home because you're like, there's no parking, we'll just watch online. There's parking in the back of the church. In fact, if you have a truck, there's a lot of options for parking in the back of the church. Hey, my name is Pastor Russ. If it is your first time here, genuinely, uh, I'm humbled that you took some time uh, to come and hang out with us. I'm glad your friend bribed you with lunch or that you saw something online that made you think maybe they're weird enough for us to fit in there. Uh, and you, you're here now. Uh, we're studying the book of Acts. It's the continuation of Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke, in his gospel, records the work of Christ on earth. And the book of Acts continues Christ's work by the Spirit through the church. And, and that's what we get. It's church history. Uh, it's a layout of how you get a few hundred believers in Jerusalem in an upper room who can't get out of their own way, who move to becoming a movement that sees the gospel by the end of its book going everywhere the Roman Empire was, which was then the ends of the earth to their knowledge by the end of it. In a short amount of time, God does a significant amount of work. And for a lot of you, you've wasted a lot of time. But I want to submit to you that once you surrender your life to God, God has the ability to make up for lost time and do significant work with a small amount of Time And so in your mind, you may be behind, but all you're standing in right now is just a need to surrender whatever time you have left to a God who can make up time because it's his construct and he owns it and he can do with time surrendered to him what you have not been able to achieve apart from him. That was free and it was not in first service. So some of you need to know that you've not lost time, but God is an on-time God and this is the time in which he has called you to surrender whatever it is you have in your life left so that he can do through it what you're sitting here regretting not having done because you didn't surrender it to him in your past. I don't know who that was for, but there you go. Uh, we're in a series study in this book called the Book of Acts. We, uh, I love this story. In Acts chapter 2, we get the inauguration of the church. In Acts 1-8, Jesus ascends to the Father. He says, do nothing until the Helper comes. Acts 2, they're gathered together in prayer as a small community in the upper room. The Spirit breaks out. They begin to speak in the native tongues of people who are in Jerusalem. And they go out in the streets preaching in their native language to different peoples. Not their native, but the people that were hearing's native Language. As a result, over 2,500 people come into fellowship with this new church. They become the, the, the early people that are known as the way. Uh, they're Jewish people or, or Greek people who have become uh, followers of Judaism, who had now become followers of the way, which is the followers of this, this man named Jesus. And, and they completely changed the way they lived their life. They began to break bread and eat meals together daily. They began to share each other's burdens and multiply each other's joys. And for three years, between Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 7, they basically have church camp every day. Uh, I was a camp pastor, and I preached uh, for about five or six, seven summers at camps in California and in the Northeast, up in Maryland, and uh, around Camp David and in Michigan. I mean, just preaching camps everywhere there was a Christian camp, and they would give me the opportunity to open the Bible when I was young. I would say yes. And sometimes the camp had three people in it, and sometimes it had a few thousand people in it. And uh, at the end of camp week, there was always this like, uh, hesitation. Maybe if you've been to a Christian camp, you can relate because you've got to go back to the world that wasn't necessarily conducive to living a life that felt close to God. 
And so they would call it the camp high, where you would get really excited about God, and you would be talking about how you were going to basically go back out into the world and with the water pistol charge to the gates of hell and overcome it and just be a conqueror for Jesus. And, and, and it almost becomes jaded after a while because you go to enough camps long enough, you're like, oh, well, here's the routine. I'm going to come here. I'm going to get close to God. I'm going to promise that I'm not going to live the way I was living before I came here. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to, within a few weeks, stop reading the Word, stop living in community, start focusing on myself again and what I want with my life. And as a result of it, the camp high is going to fade away. And I, I got jaded with that. I hate that routine, right, of seeing people get excited about God only to fall off the cliff and then to become complacent and indifferent about God. But something hit me this week through a, another person, a, a video I saw. And I want to talk about this. It's really been pushing in on me. Uh, and and I, think, I think we've gotten it wrong. I think what we're learning at camp is that we're out of rhythm in real life. That, that we're not living and prioritizing kingdom things in real life. You see, you go to camp and they tell you when you wake up to read the word. But you come home and no one's looking over your shoulder to make sure you start your day in the word. Uh, you, that, you, you then go to breakfast and you have community. You're around people. You have fun. You understand that God's kingdom is a kingdom of joy and it's not outlawing fun, right? Like, like I, I think there's a need for us to, as Christians, relearn what it looks like to have godly fun again. If joy's in us, there's reason every morning to wake up with expectation that the goodness of God's going to flow through us. So there should, there should be a, a joy that permeates, that, 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 that goes through our work day, that goes through our conversations, that, that goes through the way that we live. I, I've been coaching travel ball for a while, and one of the moms said it, uh, to my wife, she said, is your husband ever not happy? And, and, and I didn't know I was doing anything abnormal or weird. I, I believe it's the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And, and, and because I love Jesus and baseball is not my God, I think some of the, the way I talk to kids, the way that I interact with family, it's a little bit different. Like I look at kids and say stuff like, hey, there's a 2% chance that you're going to make it to like collegiate baseball, but there's like a 95% chance that you're going to get married and be a husband and a 90% chance that you're going to have kids. So I'm trying to get you ready to have the character and learning it through sports so that you're, you're ready for those things that are going to happen. And, and then I ended it at, in Florida whenever we had lost a championship game and parents were losing their minds. I ended it by saying to them, and there's a 100% chance you're going to stand before Jesus. And as your coach, I hope I helped you get a little bit closer to him because you will meet him one day face to face. It sticks out, right? I, I think you, you get to camp and they teach you to read the word. They teach you to fellowship with other believers. They teach you to have fun. And they remind you every single day to worship God. I mean, you, you worship God in the morning with songs. You worship God in the evening with songs. You open the word and you hear the word proclaimed daily. This is what was going on in the early church in Acts 2. They gathered together daily and they were doing these things and life was really good. They never wanted that to end. So much so that none of them were leaving Jerusalem to carry the gospel outside of their own city after three years. So persecution breaks out and they're scattered. But you know what doesn't change? Their rhythm of living. They still gather together. They just are gathering together in a new city. They still worship. They're just worshiping in a new city. They still are reading and observing the word. They're just doing it in a new city. And what we see happen in Acts chapter 7 to Acts chapter 12, which is what we're studying right now, is what happens whenever God sends us, whether it's by our choice or by persecution, into wild places that have yet to receive the gospel. People from different cultures and backgrounds begin to hear the gospel and be changed by it. People that are on the unsavable list begin to be impacted by the kingdom of God and they're drawn to it, like a sorcerer that we read about in Acts chapter 8. 
Church in the wild is, is really what we're supposed to be doing every single day because right now you and I have wild places where the gospel has not gone that our feet are treading. And it is our obligation and joy by the Spirit of God to carry the gospel to places where you don't think gospel conversations are needed. Gospel conversations won't be accepted. I sent you out with an assignment last week. I think that that's probably why some of the seats are thinner this week because I told you at the end of the sermon to go get in trouble or don't come back. To carry the gospel to places where it's not supposed to be. I never will forget, one of the first people I got to lead to Christ in California whenever we moved there was a tattoo artist named Justin. And Justin threw ragers in the back of his tattoo, like keggers, keg parties and stuff, in the back of his tattoo thing. And he didn't know after he met Jesus that like, there's like, some things that are probably going to change in his life. In his mind, you know, he's just doing the same stuff. So he gets saved on a Sunday and he invites me to the kegger on Friday. And I'm like, well, let's go hang out with Justin at the tattoo parlor. And this is going to make some of you uncomfortable. For some of you, you're going to go, this is my church. So I, I, no, I didn't go and drink beer. No, I didn't go and like do a keg stand. Did I think about it? In the flesh, but not in the spirit. My point, my point, my point, it was just a joke. And if you're offended now, it's going to get worse when I start reading the Bible. Um, my, my point, my point is I go back there with him to the back of the tattoo place and he wants, he's excited that he's met Jesus. And so he's walking me around and he's like, hey guys, and they're doing some commandment that they're breaking. This is my pastor. I just gave my life to Jesus and I invited him to come hang out tonight. And everyone's like, Hi. It was awkward. It was weird. You're not expecting the gospel in the back of the tattoo party on a Friday night. But, but that's the point, right? Like we, we have been commissioned wherever we tread and wherever we go to be followers of Jesus, to, to be confident that Christ is with us and has gone before us and is at work around us. And what's funny is there are a lot of people that night that were at that kegger that ended up being at church at some point in time because Justin brought them. And we saw life change happen in and through them. So, so for... for Three plus more years now, Acts 7, Acts 8, Acts 9, we get to Acts 10. Six years since Pentecost in Acts 2. And we're reading stories about all these conversions that are happening in Judea and Samaria and Joppa and uh, Phoenicia that are happening. But what's happened is the Jewish ethnic Christians and the Gentile converts to Judaism who have become Christians have gone to these cities, but they've only talked to people who look like them who are already somewhat Jewish. So then a guy named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, is praying, and God speaks to him in Acts 10, and he sends for Peter. And Peter, who is a leader of the apostles, is also still leading in this prejudice and this immaturity that's not allowed him to talk to people who didn't have a cultural background that was similar to his. Has a vision while he's praying at noon where he's told to eat food that's on the no-no list. And the reason for that is so that he would be equipped to disciple around a table a group of people who were going to put on that table food that he would not normally eat. You see, I can proclaim the gospel in a crowd, but discipleship happens around the table. See, the problem for a lot of you is you don't go to the table, therefore you're not growing. And you blame the pastor and the worship service for not getting it done and giving you the feels. It's not the worship service that's lacking inspiration. It is your inability to go to the table around other believers where the rubber can meet the road in your relationship that brings actual transformation in your life. You see, you need to be in a crowd to be inspired and reminded of the gospel, but you've got to find a group where you get around a table and you begin to share life's burdens and multiply each other's joys. This is the whole idea. 
Some of the best, most disciple-making moments I've ever had in my life came at a table and not in an audience with thousands of people. I, I got to preach to 5,000 people one time. I tell you that because there were uh, I, almost like three or 400 that responded to the gospel at the end of it and made some kind of response. It was incredible, but that is not the pinnacle of my life as a believer. The pinnacle of my life as a believer is coming moments with six or seven guys in a room whenever we're just talking about the fact that no matter how hard we try, we continue to fall short of the glory of God, and we keep doing things that we don't want to do, and we don't know why we're doing, doing them, but we're frustrated the fact that we keep doing them and we want accountability and we want prayer and we begin to pray for each other and experience God deliver each other from our uh, immaturities and our insecurities and the things that are holding us back from a full life in Christ Jesus. I, that, that has been some of the most powerful moments of my life and it was not seen by a crowd. It, it was just a few around a table. I'm preaching way better than y'all responding this morning. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who killed your cat or your dog. But, but here, here's my point. Here's my point. Peter goes and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius' house, and he's hesitant. He's uncomfortable, but the spirit breaks out. And as a result of it, it gets Peter in trouble with the uh, circumcised party back in Jerusalem, and that's where Acts chapter 11 picks up. Let's look at it together. Acts 11, verse 1, it says this. I was not prepared. I had not flipped there. I've given you time if you have a Bible to get there. If you do not have a Bible, I think we still have a few that we can give you. I've got one on the front row because I forgot my Bible last week. Yes, sometimes the preacher forgets his Bible. That was all to buy time to get to verse 1. Here we go. Soon, the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles, and even ate with them, they said. Then Peter told them exactly what happened. Okay, so in, in these first verses, we get the response back home at home base to what God is now doing in the far off places. And, and in verse 2, uh, the author wants you to know two things. He, he wants you to know, number one, the ethnic background of the people who are objecting to what God's doing in Caesarea Philippi. He wants you to know their ethnic background. Uh, the, the NLT says, uh, when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers. That's kind. But the, 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 the literal translation, and the ESV gets it a lot closer, is back home, the circumcision party. These seem like an oxymoron, right? Like, I've, I've never met anyone that was going to go through that procedure that was like, hey, anyone want to join in? Let's have a party. What are we doing? Circumcision. That's awkward because that's how awkward religious stuff can get when it's devoid of the Spirit of God. It's, it's amazing what we begin to make mountains out of and divisions with whenever we don't know the gospel. So, so, so look, the circumcision party objects to what's going on, to what Peter is doing, to the way in which Peter is going about and sharing the gospel. So, so the author wants you to know that these are people who culturally are Jewish, number one, or they were culturally uh, Hellenist, meaning they were Greek people who had come into Judaism who had now begun, become, uh, begun being followers of the way. And one of the most consistent questions that's going to get asked throughout the rest of our New Testament is how Jewish do you have to be to be Christian? The entire book of Galatians is dealing with the question of how many of the Old Testament Jewish practices do you need to go through in order for you to be with Christ? And Paul's going to have to write letters. The, the entire letter to the Roman church is to remind them that it's not by the law that we're saved, but it's by the gospel that we're saved. So Paul goes on a seven-chapter diatribe to basically say, no matter what your ethnic background is, 
We need the same Savior. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, both the Jew and the Gentile. For the wage of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. But Christ came to give us life everlasting. And in the margins of these arguments that are laying out the gospel, Paul is looking at a group of people that are thinking they're justified by something that they've done to consistently remind them that the gospel is that we are justified by what Christ has done. Not by your religious piety, not by your religious effort, not by the faith you were born into, not by the ethnic background you come from, not by the food that is on your table. You are justified before God because the Savior bled his redemptive blood for you. And it is not of your works, and it's not of your effort, and it's not of your doing. The law condemned you, but it revealed him through it. And Jesus died to fulfill the law so that we could be delivered from the punishment of the law over us. That's the gospel. And then you're going to see that over and over again because people want to be religious. It's, it's our pastime. We, we love to divide. Our nature is to figure out how we can divide. So if these people are better than us, we're still in that grouping with them. But we've got to have a divider because I don't want to be around them. They're the other side of the tracks. They're the people that don't act right. They're the people that don't look the way that we think Christians should look. Uh, they have outward markings on their body. They wear hats and shorts and these and that. And they don't appear the way that we believe you culturally should appear if God is at work in you. And, and this is the objection from this group. They're mad because they don't appear Jewish enough to have Jesus. And this brings two deadly deadly things that can seep into the church today still. Number one is the mindset that we need Jesus and something in order to be made right before God. A lot of people get into this. We sing songs, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can, no one's ever been and heard that hymn. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can. All right, watermelon. Okay, my my point. We profess a faith that is received not by effort but by grace, okay? But a lot of times if we're not careful, we'll put expectations on people that they need to prove The grace is over their life by something that they add in addition to the gospel as proof that they are saved. This is what the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem want. We need more proof that they're not as Gentile as they used to be. They were too wild to just start at ground zero in a relationship with Jesus. There's got to be a walk. There's got to be a path that they go through. So so it's, it's Jesus and a promise that they won't eat what they used to eat. There's Jesus and a promise that they will change themselves. There's Jesus and a promise that they're going to do better. There's Jesus and, and, you, and you can fill it in. Because you've all heard the variations of man-made religion that tries to add to Jesus in thinking that it's somehow going to deliver you. It's Jesus and the law. Jesus and a religious act. Jesus and a better behavior. Jesus and you fill in the blank to the expectations that we put on other people that tells them that they not only need Jesus, but he's not enough. So you need Jesus and something in addition to because you're just that bad. You see, for the objectors in chapter 11, they are objecting to the idea that Gentiles can get to Jesus without becoming more like them. And that's the second problem. You see, the question we've got to ask ourselves as a church is, are we trying to help people become more like Jesus, or are we just trying to make them more like us? 
God's kingdom is not whitewashed. God's kingdom is not vanilla. God's kingdom is diverse. It is eclectic. It's made up with every tribe and nation and tongue. And if we're not careful, we can create a homogeneous church that we say is to the glory of God that looks nothing like the end time church that's standing around the throne of God. And my concern, my concern is that in a lot of our established churches, we have, we have continued the old bigoted practice of segregation and it's still alive and well every, every 11 o'clock hour around this country. Got white church, got black church. Got Hispanic church, got Chinese church. Got our culture, our preference, our socioeconomic status, church. And I find no construct for this within the kingdom of God or within the practice of his church on earth. See, for, for a lot of us, we don't want them to become like Jesus. We want them to become like us. Let's make them more like Pastor Russ. Let's make them more like the way that we think a Christian should appear, which is slightly biblically informed and heavily opinionated in its view. Get a little bit of Bible and a lot of our opinion, and then we immediately build a construct of what we think a Christian looks like so that we can eliminate, demonize, and dismiss loving people that would be difficult. Lord forbid the Bible says something about loving people who are difficult in its text. I'm not even talking about loving non-believers. Most of you don't struggle with uh, not loving non-believers. You struggle with loving other believers who aren't like you. Therefore, we don't clearly mirror the kingdom of God to those that are outside of us because we just create a country club mentality within the church. That's okay. You ain't got to amen me about this. Wait till I start reading more of the Bible. You're going to get really offended in a minute. See, that. In their mind, the Gentiles, Cornelius, his house, they, they're not Jewish enough to be Christian. They don't look the part. They're bringing the wrong food to the holiday. And so Peter's now got to answer to the criticism. And what he does in the next several verses is a recap. Oh, oh, let me, let me, let me, uh, let me, before I jump into that, let me quickly just remind you. As Christians, what is the marker that you're a follower of Christ? Some people will say it's the cross. Some people will say it's, you know, some symbol or something like that. Okay, it's not a symbol. You see, in the Old Testament, in, Ju in Judaism, uh, if you were a Gentile, you were considered to be ignorant and unclean. But you could become clean if you become a follower of the law. And the way that you committed to being a follower of the law is you got circumcised. Okay? That was to show that you were committed to the law. You tracking with me? So the covenant sign outwardly was for men that they were circumcised. And inwardly, it's that they were devoted and dedicated to the law. Okay, Jesus comes, and then we read stuff like in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Check this out. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. How do we know that it's sin? The law of Moses. Why was the law given? Because none of us knew what sin was apart from it. That's what's going on in our country right now. Let me just be very clear, not political, just honest. We don't have law, Right? Like, it just doesn't happen. I just exited a place called California where there's no law. It, it, everyone does whatever they want to do, and the only law is if you don't look the way that we think you should look and if you're not of this group, then you get arrested for that, even though it's a minor offense in comparison to what's being done in other areas that gets overlooked and dismissed because they were, you know, a, a, a marginalized group of people. Like, like, we are creating a continuation of systemic racism within our attempts culturally apart from God to create a new society that is actually multicultural and diverse. 
And so all we're doing, this is what happens when the church steps back into the shadows and we don't want to talk about controversial stuff, is we seed the conversation and the difficult spaces into a group of people that have the Holy Spirit devoid of them. Therefore, they have no power to actually change anything that's going on around them. So as a result, you get man-made versions that break, that cannot deliver what we are actually crying for and wanting, which is a unity that is greater than our diversity. The law of Moses comes to establish the law, but it was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Staying with me? So God did what the law could not do. And this is my problem with a lot of people in church. You still think Jesus and you being obedient is going to make you justifiable before God. And it's no longer about the grace of God. It's about your effort and your works and the things you observe and the things you don't do that now are giving you a justification of thinking that you will be received by God. And it's now you, uh, Jesus plus your effort, which is no gospel at all. Anyway, he, 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 we could not do it. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. That's the gospel. He lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, rose in victory over it so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse four, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the What's the marker of you being a believer? Pentecostal people are going to get happy. It's the Holy Spirit. That's what distinguishes you. Now, some of you are like, well, I'm nervous about what you're saying. Well, let's think about it biblically because your opinion doesn't matter if the Bible disagrees with you. You ready? Matthew, Jesus says, you will know them by their, their fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. Don't believe me. Read your Bible. Jesus, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, according to the book of Galatians, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, self-control. So, so we, can, we can distinguish, we cannot with complete certainty eliminate everything, but we can distinguish love, joy, peace, patience, mercy, self-control. I'm, I may be missing one. Anyway, what? Ki- kindness? Huh. That's probably the one I'm struggling with the most. Kindness! We can start to distinguish, okay, th- this is not derived by human effort, this is derived by the, the fruit of the Spirit. And when we see these things at work, a cool-tempered head, a, a person that's a peacemaker, a, a person that's about reconciliation, when we begin to see these things active, these are signs that God's at work in the person, not that the person's become a good person and putting in a lot of effort. This is not a gym membership where you show up on a P90X and you become a superhero. That, that, that's, not, that's not what we're after here. So some of you are like, well, well how, do you, how do you bear that fruit if it's not about something I do? How do you bear that fruit? Well, let me explain. Uh, every single day, if you want to bear the fruit of God, you've got to wake up and do what's absolutely foreign to you as an American. You see, we have a declaration of, but every day if you're going to uh, bear the fruit of God, you've got to wake up and declare dependence. <laughs> see, I know it's not your nature. You know, uh, live free or die. That's what we do. You want them? Come get them. It's in your DNA. And it's not good when it comes to that posture towards God. Instead, instead, Luke 9.23 says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. What's the word? Daily. Daily. See, the, the, the problem is you can come to the crowd and you can hear the gospel and whoo, it's exciting. But then another day comes. 
And if you've not gotten on the cross and taken it up and died to your preference and died to your view of what you think can happen and stopped trying to live a self-sufficient life that just needs an assist from God, then what's going to end up happening is you're going to bear the fruit of the flesh because you're going to get frustrated when it doesn't look like the fruit of God through your effort whenever you've expended yourself trying to do all of the things that you want to be but you cannot in and of your own power make yourself produce the fruit to become. How do, you, how do you bear that fruit? Well, John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do. So I've got to take up my cross and I've got to abide, which means I've got to declare dependency on God at a level that I don't want to depend on him. That's why I prayed the Lord's Prayer at the beginning. Give us this day our... Yeah, yeah. See, the problem is some of y'all got too much bread. It's okay. I'm not, I'm not looking for a crowd. I'm just looking for a few people that are insane enough to actually walk this out. See, the problem for a lot of you is you got too much bread. So you're not dependent on Jesus. You can't be desperate when the cupboard's full. This is my concern. That we could so easily become distracted by earthly things that we forget the heavenly call of God that he has put on our life as the church. If you want to bear his fruit, you have to abide in him. For apart from him, you can do nothing. And when you abide in him and take up your cross, which that's your effort, get out of the way. God does things that you cannot predict that will happen in the path of the way. Hmm. Peter recaps the story, Acts chapter 11. He, he reads them in, even though they're not asking a question. Notice they come with a accusation, but not a question. And this is what he says. Acts chapter 5, he says, I was praying, I went into a trance, and I saw a vision. Okay, let's just stop. If you were like, hey, why are you doing this, this new ministry method, this new, like, like why, why are you doing that? And I started with, I was praying, and I went into a trance. How many of you are like, oh, that's God? Or how many of you are thinking, oh, he got hold of the wrong stuff. Mellow Mushroom put the wrong mushroom on the pizza. <laughs> And he didn't got hold of the wrong slice. I mean, like, let's just be honest, right? This is a difficult pill to swallow. I was praying. I went into a trance. A, a, a sheet came rolling out of heaven. That's verses 5 and 6 with wild and tame animals on the no-no-eat list. I heard a voice, verse 7, say, kill and eat. Verse 8, I refused. I heard a voice say, stop rejecting what I have called clean. And it happened three times, which is a big number for Peter. And we talked about it last week in the sermons on YouTube, verses 9 and 10. Then men from Caesarea arrived knocking on the door, asking for me right when I came out of that trance. The Holy Spirit told me, go with them to their master's house uh, in Caesarea Philippi, verse 12. An angel appeared to them, sending them to me, verses 13 and 14, as I preached the gospel to them begrudgingly. Because Peter's opening line after uh, the, the guy, the, uh, Cornelius kneels in front of him to worship him. It's weird, okay? It's weird. I, in California, I had so many weird moments where people were, just didn't understand stuff, and they would do weird stuff. Like, I actually had someone kneel in front of me one time, like, what are you doing? It's weird. Like, like don't do that. They're like, I didn't know. Like, what are we supposed to do? And I'm like, not kneel with me. I'll kneel with you. But you don't kneel in front of me. Like, we kneel together in front of him. Like, that's not how this works. Then he leads in after Cornelius gets up with, I'm not supposed to be here. So what do you want? <laughs> right? This is chapter 10. This is the Russ Standard Version, which it's a commentary. Okay? 
He preaches the gospel. In the middle of preaching the gospel, in the recap, in verses 15 and 16, the Holy Spirit fell on them like he fell on us. Then, verse 17, since the Holy Spirit fell on them, I just assumed we got to let them in. Even if they're on the wrong side of the tracks, even if they don't eat the things that we think are appropriate, even if they don't act the way that we think that they should act, the Spirit's there, got to let them in. Got to let them in. Now, this brings up a tension. And the the tension is, what's the difference between the message and the method? I'll briefly break this down for you. Uh, The message of the gospel is never changing. It's always in season. We are to preach and proclaim it everywhere we go. It's always the right time for us to talk about the gospel no matter what it looks like. The, the gospel's laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a summation if you struggle to know what it means. We read it briefly in Romans chapter 8. It's dropped right in in the middle of a verse that explains what the gospel is, the means by which we are made right before God so that the door uh, to righteousness and holy living can be made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with those that have been forgiven and washed by the blood of Jesus for their sins to be paid in full. That does not change. What I hope and pray I am preaching week in and week out. It's the same thing Billy Graham preached in the 60s. It's the same thing that other church fathers that came early, like Athanasius and other people preached back in the day in the early part of the church. And it goes all the way back to Pentecost where Peter stood by the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel to the crowd as the entire uh, cloud of witnesses, women included, just want to keep throwing that one in there, uh, continued to preach the gospel to the crowd that was gathered around on the day of Pentecost. My point in bringing that up is that message from Pentecost to today has not, will not, and will and should not change. However, the methods and means by which the gospel goes out looks and changes often. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit to the people that he is filled with his spirit, going to places and using methods that you may not approve of or like. Uh, We had this in an American church with the stupid battle over what kind of songs we sing. Songs are a method for worship and reminders of the gospel to be given. If I go to a country and polka is what's there, then get the daggum accordion out and let's praise his name. The sound's not as important as the message. Does this make sense? Yet, for, for a lot of us, we, we have divided churches over tertiary, secondary things that were all about methods and preferences, and we wanted to make them biblical means for breaking fellowship. So dumb. So dumb. It brings disunity into the body. He brings forward a new method. Now, the question is, is the method good? Is God in the method? There's three things they do to discern that. Uh, and, and, well, one, they don't do, and two, they should have done. I'll, I'll teach them to you. Three things they should have done. One, number one, whenever you see a method you don't understand, when God's moving and you hear about it on Twitter or on Instagram, and you're like, oh, well, it wasn't in our church, so it's watered down. Okay, but before you make that judgment, you should start by asking questions to the people that are experiencing and being involved in the movement. P- Peter comes back, and he's a brother in Christ, and they leave with the assumption that he has walked away from Christ to go and hang out with Gentiles. Instead of going, man, it must be Jesus at work in some way that's led him to the house of Cornelius. You see, see, if, if, if you want to discern whether or not the method's a method in which God is blessing, you lead with questions and not assumptions. Because assumptions, well, you get the idea. 
they make us look foolish. How many of you have assumed something of your pastor, assumed something of a church about their genuineness or disingenuousness, and as a result of it, no conversation was had, and gossip was started about a move that God very well may be in control of and at work in? If you want to be a part of a move of God, if you want to discern whether the method is at work, then you ask questions instead of making assumptions. Number two, you test it by the word. Peter in Acts chapter 11 verse 15 and 16 says, As I was preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them and I remembered. Notice what he says, Acts 16. I remembered the Lord's word. The Lord's word. The word is never going to be contradicted in a work that God is doing. The word is never contradicted in a work that God is doing. For some of you, you believe that it's God's work that's going on in your life to compromise in relationships, to look past sin that God has called sin clearly in Scripture, and you're calling it blessed by God when in actuality it's a compromise by man. And God's word's there to distinguish, hey, God may be wanting to do something in it, but right now your hands are on it, and if you don't get out of the way of it, it's going to be nothing but brokenness that comes from it, i.e. most of the dating relationships that have happened in this room. Make sense? You compromised in dating. Then you said, I do, and made a covenant. And then you complain about them to God whenever you were dis ignoring what the word was telling you were character flaws that should have been worked out in the dating process before you ever made a covenant and put a ring on it. Now, someone's going to walk out of here and be like, well, that's a clear sign that we did it wrong, so now God's not in it. No, no, no. You went and made a covenant, not with that person, but with God. He's in it. So now bear down because your sanctification and God's work through your life is going to be seen in the working out of an imperfect marriage. And I don't care how good you start, you're going to need the Holy Spirit to endure to the very end, to fulfill the vows that you've made in the marriage relationships that you have with other people. But my point and my encouragement is because you didn't discern with the word, you assumed that the method of dating that was going to lead to intimacy was going to deliver something that you wanted and desired within your soul, but then you didn't find it because it wasn't a method that God was actually at work in. It was a means by which you could compromise to get done what you didn't believe God would actually deliver on, which is actually a proof that you doubted God and didn't think that he was good enough to bring to you what you needed. Didn't go here in first service. Second service in the wild. Genesis chapter 2, before Adam knew that he was alone, God knew that he was alone and was already at work in his need. God already knew the need. Genesis 2, 18, 17, 18, it says, uh, for, for it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper that's suitable for him. Adam does not hear that conversation, does not know that it is happening. He then gets an assignment. Go name all the animals. Why? Because God's about to design for you something that's custom made, and it's not like any of these other relationships that are out there. And so if you will wait on God, God will deliver to you something that's custom that you can't design in and of your own working and in and of your own hands. It's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. <laughs> she should be called woman because she was taken out of my side. Man. You want that? Get off the bachelor's method of dating. You, you, you want that? Stop dishonoring God in the relationships that you're trying to cover under the banner of Christianity that are compromising every step of the way to the altar and then hoping that you're not going to carry baggage into the marriage that the Spirit of God's now got to work at through your life and through your relationship.
the method ain't right. Why? Because the Bible already has laid out a method that is right, and this step-by-step is contradicting it. That's how you discern. Number two, you discern with the word. Number three, number three, you observe the fruit, verses 16 and 17. Peter says, basically, I saw the fruit of what was going on, and I thought, who am I to stand in the way. You see, they saw Jesus in the story. Verse 18, chapter 11, verse 18 says, when others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, can we, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and eternal life. You know what they did? They allowed the word and discerning the fruit of what was going on to shut them up and move them from being critics to being people that were joining in the praise. They moved from being people that were opposing what God was celebrating to being people that were celebrating what God was already at work celebrating in. You discern. You, you, you ask questions instead of making assumptions. You discern with the word. And number three, number three, you observe the fruit. So what happens? Well, we get a meanwhile. This is kind of an end summary statement, okay? I could go five more hours right now on this. There's so much here. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death, that's a summation statement that brings back Acts 6 and 7, okay? After Stephen's death, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch of Syria, they, check it out, preach the word of God, but only to Jews. That's in your Bible. Six years, and they're looking past people that don't look like them, and they're only talking to people that are comfortable to them. They're not wild. Therefore, if, if it, look, I'll just be honest, following the Holy Spirit's a wild goose chase. It is not linear. It looks like, like mm, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this out loud. You know I'm going to say it. If you're not every now and then, not, not because of compromise, but by association with people who are still very wild, being accused of being one of them, I'm not saying you engage in their activities, but, but you are the light in the darkness there. You are the salt in the earth there. But if you're not, if you're not every now and then getting accused of being one of them because they're not coming over to the table enough at the house, you're not fellowshipping with them, like, like, like I'm not sure you're being risky enough. That's why I told you to go get in trouble last week in Jesus' name. Notice this. They were only speaking to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. Read the words here. The power of the Lord was with them. Why? Because the heart of God is not for a homogeneous one ethnic group church. The heart of God through the Savior if you read his lineage in Matthew is that Jesus Born in, uh, coming out of Nazareth, born to people who have an ethnic Jewish uh, background, but it's diverse because Rahab's in there. She was not Jewish. <laughs> because there's, there's lots of names that start popping into the genealogy. Why? Because on the cross, our Savior died multicultural blood to redeem a multicultural people so they could become one people around his throne, worship him, worshiping him uh, at his throne. That's Revelation chapter 7. Now, here's my, here's my problem Revelation chapter 7 says every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping God around the throne, right? And then we're like, but it's, but it's not heaven. But then we're supposed to pray, your will be done on as it is in. Yet, so that's our excuse for looking past neighbors that don't look like us so that we can continue to have a church that's filled that's more of a country club than the power of the Spirit. 
And you gotta understand something. That, that I would rather have 150 people that look like the community we're in because we're not overlooking the people that are outside the walls of here than to have 1,500 people all from the same socioeconomic and ethnic background who get along and vote the same and are never gonna disagree or have a problem. Like, I, I, I like the fact that when God's at work in the church, you get a group of people around election seasons where it's tough to be unified with them because you don't see the way they see, think the way they think, vote the way that they vote. You, you get frustrated with different people in there. I and mean, if it weren't for Jesus, you probably wouldn't associate with them. And here's what's amazing about that. That's the idea. That was the entire idea. If it weren't for Jesus, why would we even be here? Gathered together. I, we don't think the same. Some of you pull for the Gamecocks. What the world are you doing? Like, why would I hang out with you? Woo! I don't have anything to do with that. Are you kidding me? But Jesus makes me in the biggest Gamecock fan. Well, that's my brother. That is my brother because of the blood of Christ. And look, look, look. The power of the Lord was with them. And a large number of those Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. This is where? It's in Antioch. I don't know if you remember that detail. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. There's now like, hey, we need some questions on that. We've seen this. It happened in Cornelius' house. We're not going to continue to be the same way that we were because we know God works in mysterious ways. So we're going to send Barnabas to Antioch. Look at what it says. I love this. I'll go quick. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of God's blessing. He was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who now is known as Paul, who was an adversary who had become an advocate of the gospel. Look at what it goes on to say. If you have it, you have it. If not, I'll read it. Verse 26, it says this. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was in Antioch that the believers were first called. Up until this point, they were just the way. But then they had to figure out how to take a diverse, multicultural people and identify them because they weren't normally supposed to hang out. And the word they labeled that gathering with was Christian must be Christ. That, as long as I labor in ministry, as long as God has allowed me to be a minister of his gospel, that will be my ambition, that we will not look like the preacher on the platform, but we will come from every tribe and nation and tongue because there's a Savior who's bringing a diverse gathering that in Revelation 7 will stand around the throne and worship Him, and we're not waiting for heaven for that to be seen on earth. May it be so here today. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Our worship team is going to lead us in a time of response. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, man, there are good days ahead for this church. God's got great plans for this church. We're just getting started. And the power of God, I believe, is here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. You move as the Lord leads.